0: This news just in, listeners. The Athletic is extending its £1 a month offer for all new subscribers, meaning you can get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a brand new breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts for just a quid. This deal won't last forever, though, so don't miss out. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally.
1: Totally Football Show, today Premier League Round 5, Spurs West Ham like a Tory backbenchers wet dream, the threat of a good thrashing with Kane followed by manual relief. Meanwhile, on Merseyside, Derby refereeing produces two Oliver twists and Pickford's big van removal. We examine the controversy and where it leaves the champions. Elsewhere, there's much more to discuss, so we'll be rounding up all the drama and looking ahead to the midweek action, too, as the Champions League gets underway in this Toby totally football show in association with Paddy Power. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Monday, 19th of October. Listener, hello morning to you. What a time to be alive, eh? It's been a a brilliant weekend of action. We've got top-notch European action on the way in the days to come, and Forrest won a match as well. Huzzah! Uh, An hour as well, I'm delighted to say, coming up in the company of Daniel Storey of The Eye. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Michael Cox is also with us here from the world of brainy authordom. Hi, James. And it's a big welcome to Sasha Gurionov of Oka Sports and having a real day job. (laughs) Hi, James. Hi, Sasha. Wow, what are we, ken? What do we have? Two 3-3s, three, a 2-2, two, 2-1-1s, two, two, one, and still no nil-nils, although we very, very nearly got one until that extremely late drama with Ross Barkley Sunday night at the King Power.
2: Still not as many goals as in Serie A. But... That's true, isn't it, Sasha? 34 in 8 games in Serie A. Yeah, I mean, Serie a is just bonkers, though, isn't it? It's always
1: been the case, though. Not everybody watched the game between... Leicester and and Villa because of you know the PPV and that. Daniel you were across it am I right?
3: Yeah yeah I mean it was it was the worst game I've watched this weekend. <laughs> um until well that that wasn't changed by Ross Barkley's late winner but I guess that at least gives us a headline and puts Aston Villa as still I think the only 100% team in England which is absolutely remarkable not least because of the opposition they've played.
1: Yeah only one other team in Europe. Daniel has such a fine record and it is Milan after their Derby win. Villa now second place in the Premier League behind Everton, one point behind Everton with Liverpool in third. West Ham up in eighth. Leeds are ninth with the game in hands. There's loads of other teams we could talk about, but there's league tables for that if you want to do that kind of thing, listeners. We've got a bunch of top football thinkers assembled here to analyse the weekend. Let's start off then with a match that really does take some explaining and it's
0: Sunday afternoons, Spurs West Ham. You're listening to the Totally Football Show sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network.
1: Creswell sends it in towards Rice. He couldn't get near it. Snodgrass was hoping it would drop. Lanzini!
0: Oh, It's incredible! What a goal from Manuel Lanzini and the most unlikely of comebacks from West Ham United.
1: Woof. All right, so West Ham 3-0 down, away to Tottenham with eight minutes to go. Talk me through this one.
2: To be honest, it came out of nothing. It came out of one free kick. I don't think there was any, anything in that game suggesting that West Ham were capable of any sort of fight back. It felt like Bale came on maybe to score his first goal for Spurs. But I, I, I thought that West Ham were pretty much settled for a 3-0 and then they get a free kick. Um, And there's a bit of panic in the uh, Spurs' back line. And, yeah, just quite quite a spectacular defensive collapse, I thought. Um, And even then, they should have won it. So, um, yeah, I'm just uh, quite gobsmacked by how that turned around, to be honest. Beal, who'd come on for
1: what seemed like a very soft re-debut for his former club, Uh, came on, had the free kick, and then had a huge chance when it was 3-2, to, to make it 4-2. Even then, it still felt like a minor detail, a, a question of, of the scoreline. But instead, in the 94th minute, Manuel Lanzini, with the last kick of the game, sparking pandemonium, it, it was just extraordinary.
3: Yeah, and it was... It, West Ham are a bit like that. They, they they seem to produce from one week and then don't seem to gain any momentum or suffer any negative momentum. Um but it felt like this was everything of them within the same game for once, because it wasn't just. I mean, Sasha's absolutely right. The goals did come from nothing, but there was such a marked change in them after half time. I think they got sort of four or five corners within five or 10 minutes of, of the restart. And Tottenham were coasting, but they, they were at least pushing, and it, you know, brilliant comeback. But it kind of begs the question of why they were so dismal in the first 15 minutes of the game, because. Um, had they defended properly in the, you know, in the first quarter of the match, they would have won it. I mean, it will infuriate Mourinho. Of course, it will because it felt like social media being social media. People were starting to think of Tottenham as title challenges in the first half, and then maybe proving in the last ten minutes why why they might not be.
1: It's not the first time it's happened either. You think back to the game with Newcastle, which ended with the point shared in in similarly frustrated fashion. As you mentioned, social media getting busy with this uh, West Ham ball, I think was the the hashtag that did the most business after this finish. But it is extraordinary. No team has ever been 3-0 down, 81 minutes played and got something from the game, in the Premier League at least.
4: Yeah, it's not even a dangerous lead, is it? Three goals. Um, Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about this was it actually reminded me a lot of Mourinho's first game in charge, which was away at West Ham, where Tottenham went 3-0 up after, I think, about 50 minutes. That's 5-0 rather than 1-5 in this case. Um, And it seemed like they had the game won and then were really hanging on at the end and West Ham got it back to 3-2. The only thing really that was different was, of course, Lanzini's incredible shot. But yeah, it it just seemed to me like Spurs kind of thought the game was won. And to a certain extent, I I understand why they would feel like that, having been 3-0 up for the majority. But I thought it was interesting what David Moyes said after the game, where he very unusually said... I thought I thought my side played really well in the first half when they're 3-0 down and he said that, you know, sometimes the most difficult thing is when you're in that situation not to make any changes. And it's interesting that despite being 3-0 down, he, he did not make a substitution until 77 minutes. Um, even then, I'd say more or less kind of straight swaps rather than you know, chucking on two extra strikers. So, I mean, fair play to Moyes and my stand for kind of trusting in the, the process and continuing what they were doing because I think a lot of sides would have uh, either stopped playing or tried to make such severe adjustments that they left themselves open to the counter which aside from that Bale chance at 3-2, I don't think they did.
1: Is, is there any substance to the notion that Bale's entrance, the substitution bringing Bale on, was one of the turning points of the game?
2: I don't think so. Um, I don't think it contributed to the goals in any sort of way. I think it's two soft free kicks that uh, Spurs gave away. I don't think it really structurally it contributed to anything. If, if anything, you could say, you know, he was quite dangerous on the counter uh, as, as as with that chance. Um, so I, I mean, whilst it's easy to say, oh, look, Bale comes on and loses 3 in your lead. I don't really think that really changed much.
4: I, th- I think it was a, a direct correlation in that Bale will have to play another twenty-four matches again before he ends <laughs> up on the winning side like the first time
1: around. Yes. What kind of lost amongst all of this was the incredible beginning that Spurs had had to the game with young man's son opening the scoring a couple of minutes in and Harry Kane with a phenomenal first-half performance. Uh, Harry Kane, who, of course, is a slow starter to Premier League seasons and has been directly involved in 12 Premier League goals so far this campaign, five goals and seven assists. Julian Laurent's tweeting, Harry Kane is England's best number 10 and England's best number 9.
3: Well, yeah, he he's... I mean, the the big question about Tottenham in terms of an attacking way was how they linked together midfield and attack. That didn't just involve Heung-Min Son having to pick the ball up deep and run twenty or thirty yards. They 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 lost their chance creator in Christian Eriksen, and it was how they would recreate that. And it does seem like Harry Kane might be that chance creator. He he has always been brilliant at, at picking a pass either first or second touch, whether it's flicking it around the corner. He has an incredible knowledge of where players are going to be for that oncoming run. Um, but now he's playing this sort of, almost like a little sort of quarterback role where he, he can pick out passes. The, the pass for the first goal was 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 brilliant, albeit aided by pretty rotten defending. Um, and, and the crucial thing to say is that it doesn't seem to have affected his his goal scoring, if anything, it's as if he says, well, I will do that and I'll do it well, but I don't want this to take away from my goal scoring. So I'm going to try extra hard to, to keep getting the shots away. So, yeah, it all looked rosy in that regard.
1: As I say, there were echoes of the draw with Newcastle here. So how do you think this leaves Spurs? How worried should Josie Inu be, Michael?
4: Well, he was uh, fairly pragmatic after the game kind of said, that's football, that kind of thing can happen. And I kind of get what he means. I mean, I think another day that Kane shot from range goes in or Bale scores the goal on the counter-attack. Certainly some of the defending late on was was pretty poor. And Spurs do seem to have a habit of set-piece concessions, which is not very like a Mourinho side. Um, but overall, I mean, I think, I think there were quite a lot of positives
2: in the game for Spurs.
4: It just so happens they were all within the first 15 minutes. Mm-hmm.
2: I also thought uh, the third goal was quite like looked really good because this was when Kane pushed on and Son dropped and there was no one with Son because I think the West Ham defense wasn't sure what to do so he dropped into that pocket of space released Reguillon and then obviously Kane attacks the back post so I think the fact that Kane can do both roles and Son can do both roles I think it makes it very difficult for defenders there.
1: Mm. Of course, it would have been a different result if Lloris had used his right hand. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Okay. well it was a tremendously entertaining match to watch, so well done to both sides. Loads of other uh, absolutely thrilling encounters uh, this weekend, Uh, lots of draws featuring late drama as well at Chelsea and at Everton, and indeed Everton's clash with Liverpool is where we're heading next. We know everyone thinks this season is going to be different, but at Paddy Power we're staying positive because isn't the new normal just the same old football? Avoid unnecessary journeys. That's Fulham's trip to Anfield off. Self-isolate. Some strikers do that very effectively already. You see? New normal, same old football. And that's why if one leg of your four-plus-fold ACCA lets you down, you get your money back as a free bet on all football matches and all markets. The ACCA Cracker from Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude
0: shop. Besties and C's apply. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Pushes that one down the line to find Luca Deen. Who can he pick out here? There's the header, Calvert-Lewin. Who else? It had to be. He's at it again in a Merseyside derby this time.
1: Yep, it's 2-2 Saturday in league-leading Everton's derby it's clash it's with it's champions Liverpool. A game rich in drama and controversy. You had uh, Salah's goal, uh, Dominic Cavett-Lewin's leap, the disallowed winner. But I think we have to start with the events of the opening minutes. Pickford's foul on Van Dijk. Liverpool, of course, were already up 1-0 through Sadio Mane. And busy challenging again when Pickford storms out and clatters Virgil van Dijk. uh, Sasha.
2: Just makes me really angry just thinking about it, to be honest. Um, Also, Van Dijk today confirmed that he's torn his ACL. Um, I'm not sure whether there's any any more information on how much further knee damage there is. I mean, if it's just a torn ACL, he might be back for the end of the season. If there is more, I think he's out for the season. But I think, I mean, I'm not a great fan of Jordan Pickford. um, And I tend to sort of pick on his positional errors, you know, when he can see goals or his lack of composure. But I think... Fundamentally, what we saw here, and I know some Liverpool fans are going on on Twitter about conspiracy theories, how Pickford did it, like it was intentional. It wasn't. Um, I think what strikes me about Pickford is he's a goalkeeper who seems to play without any composure whatsoever. He's jumpy. He feels like his judgment is impaired. And what we saw, what happened with Van Dijk, it was just basically reckless. Um, I think, you know, he he saw Van Dijk coming through and he just completely lost all sense of where he was and what he was supposed to do. It was Awful, uh, the challenge on him. I mean, he basically scissored his knee. Um, and uh, But it didn't surprise me because I think Pickford has this in him. And I think, you know, it's um, it, it is seems to be part of his game at the moment. Um, and it's not going to really take him anywhere if he carries on like this. I think he needs really to pull himself together. What we saw here was a, a certain part of his game that now became a danger to an opposition player, uh, which is really, really unfortunate. Beyond his... Performance.
1: Uh, what about the role of both the two officials who were at uh, VAR in Stockley Park, but also Michael Oliver, who was standing a couple of yards away from the incident?
3: Yeah, I, I have some sympathy with Oliver. In that, it, it, it looked as if, from the naked eye, as if Pickford was was kind of spreading himself to make himself big for what he anticipated was going to be a shot from Van Dijk. He wasn't looking at the ball, so I'm guessing he didn't know where that was, and that's both a defence and a prosecution when you are diving into a challenge. But um, So I have some sympathy for, for Oliver, Partly because I think it was a tough decision to get right, and partly because he knows he has VAR to look at that as well, or should have had. And, and the reality is is that VAR should have looked at not just the offside, but should have also looked at the challenge in isolation. and from, from all accounts it, it, it failed to do so. That was a, a fault of the VAR officiating.
2: But see that's the thing as well that um, in the aftermath of the game, some, some people are, some sources are saying they haven't looked uh, at, uh, at the challenge. Other sources are saying they've looked at the challenge and decided it wasn't a red. So, I mean, there's a lot of confusion. I think no wonder that Liverpool are asking questions. But also, I think if you contrast it with what happens late in the game with Richarlison, you know, Oliver sees the Richarlison challenge straight away and he straight away goes for a red. And, you know, there is a wait where VAR review it. I mean, I think I, I agree with Alan Shearer on match of the day. On Saturday night, where he said, "Look, you know they're finding these offsides, but they cannot see this—that this challenge is is awful." Um, which, 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 which I have to completely agree with because it is, it is something I don't quite understand how that 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 could have happened. It's almost—I mean, I I, ca- I can understand how they might focus on a particular issue so much, but then I can't believe that they just r- forget about the rest of the incident. Um, mm-hmm. And this this is this is this is the thing uh, which which I really have a big problem with—that uh, Pickford committed this challenge and walked away from it and with with no punishment at all. Yeah.
1: And how much difference does that make, do you think, to what happened in the game, given that he makes a couple of key saves in each half? And you could make the case, and it has been made, that Everton's two goals might not have happened, certainly one of them, when they're still adjusting from his his absence. They're still kind of working out their defensive assignments with him, suddenly off the field, that his absence has a large bearing in Everton's two goals. You're not having that, Daniel.
3: Well, no, I mean, I mean, yes, it might have done, but but those sort of if, um, ifs and buts happen in every instant where a player. This is quite big, though, with the,
1: with the, with the keeper who's who's behind the injury, staying on and being absolutely key in a couple of Liverpool chances.
3: Yeah, but I mean, Robin Olsen's their backup goalkeeper, and he is a good goalkeeper. So we don't we don't know what would have happened if Robin mm. Olsen would have come on. Just as we, you know, we don't know anything. I mean, the reality is is that the decision was wrong. Um, I don't think it's. Well, you're right, but I just don't think it's particularly helpful to think, well, maybe this did this and did this. And I think that that kind of thing is what has fueled the sort of farcical kind of social media memes of, you know, Liverpool fans saying, well, we should be awarded two points. And this is just nonsense. Of course, it's nonsense. It's football. It happens. It's really frustrating, but it happens. We'll save Um, that
2: for a flip reverse with Duncan in years to come. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Uh, I, I would also add another thing. I mean, people are saying that Pickford had a good game and he did. But yet at the end of the game, Mm. the mistakes that he makes crept in because he shanks the clearance, which leads to the red. And also, if the Henderson goal stands, he should be saving that shot. So I I think you could say that Pickford's game was perhaps as erratic as it usually is, except this
1: time he got away with it. Okay, so now you mentioned the Henderson goal. What would have been the winner for Liverpool that was disallowed? If you were angry about the Van Dyke absence of a red card for that challenge, what colour did your face turn when that goal was called back? Uh, to be
2: honest, not not uh, uh, the thing that makes me angry the most about the game is the Van Dijk challenge. Right, like it's I, I think it tr- completely trumps this disallowed goal at the end because okay. the implication of the Van Dijk challenge is beyond the two points is be much beyond this game. It's now we're going to have an impact of it for the rest of the season, and I think Liverpool also perhaps have to play now several weeks without Allison, without Van Dijk, and these mm. were the key you know, the, the, um, these were the cornerstones of their successes over the last two seasons. I mean, Van Dijk plays every game. This is a good point that Klopp made after the game. If Van Dijk had to come off, it was it must have been really bad because he plays through pain. He doesn't come off. I think the last time he came off in the league game was two years ago against yeah. Southampton. He, I think he started, like, I think it's 93 consecutive league games, league games. It's absolutely He's absolutely vital to this. So it will be really curious to see how Liverpool come back from this. I think... Uh, because, um, I mean, they have a game against Ajax coming up. Ajax just scored five goals. I mean, what does this do to defensive organisation? Perhaps the midfield is going to have to be more conservative uh, than it is at the moment. Um, so I think there will be there would have to be changes in the Liverpool game to compensate for this.
1: I insist that we talk about the disallowed, uh, uh, Liverpool's <laughs> disallowed winner, Michael.
4: Uh, I think it's the most marginal VAR offside I've seen. I mm. mean, I've, I've watched the clip so many times and I can't tell if he's offside. Um, I think it's increased... I mean, I know we discussed many times last season about the issue with frame rate and being sure whether a player's offside, but I actually think it's become even more complex now because the change to the handball law means that the line is now not drawn from the shoulder, which is quite an obvious thing to see, and is instead drawn from a point somewhere between the shoulder and the elbow, which to me seems highly debatable. So, look, I know it's a a technical point, but when there's millimetres in it, and that seems Mm. to be the case here... um, I'm just finding it slightly difficult to believe that this is 100% right. Okay, you have to make the best guess. But, uh, yeah, it was another game where I came away from it kind of wishing that VAR wasn't in football, to be honest.
1: well, You say make the best guess, but in the absence of any certainty, wasn't the notion, wasn't this even something that FIFA and and IFAB had stipulated that in the absence of certainty, the goal should have stood?
4: Yeah, I mean, um, I I guess the issue then is is, it's difficult to say what, margin you can be certain on, on what you can't I, I think then you get into other grey areas but uh, yeah certainly I mean I think Liverpool have written to the Premier League asking for an explanation about what part of Mane's body was offside and um, I'm not sure that was the intention when VAR was brought
1: in to kind of clear up any
4: controversy about mm. refereeing decisions.
1: I, I, we touched on the things that made you angry or, or disgruntled Sasha which bits
2: made you really really happy in this game Salah's goal Um, Salah's goal won because I think he's worked on some technique over the summer because it is the same uh, sort of volley without basically moving that he scored against Leeds he scored against Villa and now against Everton Uh, there's certainly some technique going on there Uh, but the other thing that really stood out for me was Thiago Um, I mean you could see from this game uh, that Liverpool's midfield definitely has changed Liverpool's midfield uh, he's really good at passing the ball now he's disguised passes with which he created two chances in the second half uh, were amazing uh because literally it's, it's his body. yeah well perhaps but it's he opens up his body the whole everybody thinks is going to go to the to, to, to the right hand side yet he played in i think salah and he slightly overhit it to fermino and the ball to Mane at the end after he was clattered by Charlison was absolutely brilliant um so mm-hmm. i think and also you can see he's talking he's completely involved in the game as obviously he's player who comes in with lots of experience winning experience lots of skill lots of confidence and he's straight into that Liverpool midfield it's straight into a system which is not very easy to pick up so he's obviously very bright very smart now we'll see we'll see how long Liverpool will lose him for now uh but certainly once once he returns um I think this is perhaps where Liverpool are going to have to compensate for Van Dijk's absence maybe they're just going to have to start outscoring a position again
3: yeah, I mean one of the the Tiago thing is 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 obviously a double punishment for Liverpool because one of the reasons they didn't sign a central defender this summer is is that they had they did sign a central midfielder and therefore they thought that or Jürgen Klopp thought that Fabinho could slot into that back line um and become another centre back even after leaving Lovren and, and Herva. Um if if Tiago is going to be out for a period of time, then Fabinho might well be needed in midfield, which punishes them twice, as I say, because they, they lose him as a potential defensive option.
2: I quite like the balance uh with Fabinho in midfield. Fabinho Thiago Henderson. Uh, I thought it was you know it, it was a very well balanced midfield. Um because I mean the guys knew what everyone else was. I think Fabinho did a reasonable job of covering the defence. I think this is this is this is the interesting thing as well. Um, uh, it's, you know, Everton top of the league. Um but you know Liverpool dominated this game. This is I have to agree with Club after the game with this. I think also you know, Liverpool found space quite well. They really passed it around Everton early doors, and I think it knocked Everton's confidence a bit. And I thought that pocket of space, almost in the diamond, in the middle of a diamond of defenders that Manis found at early doors, they found it later and later. And this was precisely in this space that Henderson found himself in. So they clearly did their homework. So I think, in terms of football, um, if, if I were Klopp, I'd be really pleased. I mean, as a fan, I was worried how they're going to come back from 7 2. And, you know, I didn't see any signs of that here. I thought it was a very confident performance. From
1: Everton's point of view, uh, Dominic Cabot lewin continuing his brilliant start to the season. Ham is looking uh, comfortable again? Uh, any other thoughts?
4: I think James Rodriguez has been the best player in the Premier League so far. I thought he was sensational again. Everton, I, I agree with uh, what Sasha said. I think they were outplayed for the majority, particularly in midfield. But, I mean, every time James got the ball on the right flank, he created something. He was involved in both the goals, one from set-piece, one for playing that ball into Dini for the, for the cross. Um, he created that chance for Richarlison where his head hit the post. He played in Calvert-Lewin in behind for a good shot. I mean, almost every time he gets the ball, he seems to be able to create a chance. And um, yeah, I I think Everton were outplayed here and for a couple of reasons, pretty lucky to come away with a point. But for them to be top of the league after five games um, and three points clear of Liverpool, um, it's been a fantastic start. So yeah, I don't think we should be too down on them because you know they haven't really covered themselves in glory in Merseyside derbies recently. And while they didn't win this, I still think they will, uh, yeah, take some positive signs from it. Mm.
3: The other, the other thing for Everton is that the, the resilience they've shown twice this season. You know, they conceded first against West Brom, conceded first against Liverpool, and took four points from those two games. Over the last two years, um, they've, the most they've taken in a season when conceding first is seven points in a season. So they've been criminally bad at reacting to that adversity. So to have kind of changed that and almost matched that in the first five weeks of the season is is something that will really please Ancelotti
1: Hey listener, when it comes to football know-how listening to us three times a week means you should be at the very top of your game like Kevin De Brunner, you can see the play before it happens so isn't it time that you made some extra coin from all of this Football Index is the way to capitalise on your knowledge of all things on and off the field. Buy shares in the players you think will perform and win dividends when they make an impact on the pitch or in the media. Download Football Index on iOS and Android today, and when you enter the offer code TFS20, you'll get a seven-day, £500 money-back guarantee. Full terms and conditions are available at trade.footballindex.co.uk/slash money-back guarantee. It's 18 plus only and please be gamblerware.org. Become a football stock market trader today with Football Index.
0: You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power.
1: The rest of the Saturday action, well, pay-per-view customers certainly got some goals. Uh, for their hard-earned money. Uh, Chelsea Saints ending 3-3. And then in the late one, we had another five goals as Newcastle uh, got done by Man United 4-1. Uh, possibly the biggest statistic here, though, comes from NUFC Fans Food Bank, who says, we're proud to announce that uh, you have donated £16,000 from the charity Not PPV campaign. People urged to give money to local food banks, as opposed to splashing out for this game. This game was 1-1 in something of an echo of what we were saying with Spurs before, but it was 1-1 with five minutes of normal time remaining. It ended up 4-1. What happened?
3: Well, I mean, Newcastle's luck eventually gave out. they have conceding shots at an almost record-breaking rate so far this season. And um, last season, they, 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 you know, they would, they're they defensive by design, but they're not actually very good at defending. They allowed a lot of shots last season and Martin Dubravka was easily their best player. And this season, Cardalo has easily been their best player. But at some point, if you allow opponents to have 28 shots in the match, which they did against Manchester United, those mm-hmm. opponents will eventually score.
1: 29, I've got, so it's even worse than you say. It's going off
3: all the time, James.
1: Yeah. A great result for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, though, after, of course, the disastrous defeat to Spurs, but also the rumours that had followed in the uh, over the international break about discontent, lack of faith among the squad, uh, grumbling from the likes of Fernandes, it is said. But uh, the, the changes he made here as well, bringing Matter in to kind of partner Fernandes in the midfield seemed particularly effective.
4: I thought Mata was really good actually and it was nice to see because I just think he's a wonderful player and I think it was nice as well that he was so prominent in some of Manchester United's counter-attacking moves because, I mean this is going back a few years now, but I mean his career really, not ended, but maybe his career as a really, really top player kind of ended when Mourinho judged that he wasn't really good enough for playing on the counter-attack at Chelsea um, because he'd been sensational in his first two years um, in the Premier League and I don't think his career's ever really hit those heights Um yeah, some of his combination play with Fernandes, who was again fantastic, um, was really, really good. And we saw, I mean, United are very good when they're allowed to counter-attack. And the goal that they scored, the second goal from Fernandes was absolutely sensational. I mean, a really, really good move. And then I think, you know, obviously Newcastle were piling forward in the closing stages and United could pounce on the break. So, yeah, there were some decent signs here. And, uh, and yeah, it's something to be said as well for the you know, the mentality of the side, considering that early goal, I mean, after such a heavy defeat last time out, um, I think they were the better side and maybe epitomised by Harry Maguire, who who scored Mm. the equaliser after a difficult time for him and actually could have had another one with John Joe Shelby heading off the line. So, yeah, positive signs for for United.
1: Nice one. Next up, they've got Paris Saint-Germain away. That's on Tuesday, followed by Chelsea, then RB Leipzig, who are top of the Bundesliga right now, then Arsenal, then Istanbul, Basak Shahir. And then Everton. Crikey. And all of that is coming up in the next three weeks. Is this season crazy or what? We're going to be talking about the Paris Saint-Germain fixture coming up on Tuesday, a little bit later on in this show with Julien Laurence. But speaking of Chelsea, as we mentioned, they were also involved on Saturday. Uh, 3-3 draw with Saints. Once again, Chelsea very much
2: a team of two halves. Would it be too simplistic to think of this game as Timo Werner playing against the high line? Timo Werner taking on Bednarek. Uh, who, whose number he obviously had, especially after he turned in for the first goal. Also, perhaps uh, Southampton not being as tight in midfield as they could be. Perhaps Jorginho dropping deep and you know, sending that long ball over the top. But you saw when Southampton's press did work, uh, they knocked out Havertz and scored a goal immediately. So perhaps, you, I, I, I don't know, I, I was looking at this game thinking, yeah, Werner could run away from the back line. Once he gets a bit of speed, you know, it's very hard to defend against him. And I think, for me, this is sort of pretty much what happened in the first half, that perhaps Southampton went tight enough in the midfield and that was that high line that they couldn't quite protect against a very fast forward. Seems fair, Sasha.
1: Um I did want to talk a little bit about the extraordinary defensive numbers that Frank Lampard continues to compile there conceding 1.5 goals per game under him uh, since he, he took over. That's the worst record of any permanent Chelsea manager in the division. Um, and the thing that, to a simple folk like me, seems strange is that this is a team with Jorginho, but also with N'Golo Kante there in, in midfield. So why are they so desperately bad? I know Kepper was back here, but it wasn't all his fault. No,
4: not entirely his fault, although I do think, I mean, the second goal, he didn't cover himself in glory. And even the first one, I thought he was rounded particularly easily by Danny Ings um, yeah I mean there, there just seems to be quite a lot of individual mistakes I mean none of their centre-backs have ever really installed themselves as a solid first choice we saw Christensen make a really bad error against Liverpool that basically cost them the game we saw Zuma make a really bad mistake here with a back pass that got Keper in trouble um, I just I just don't really trust any of their defenders even Thiago silva who came in obviously made that mistake against west brom so look, there's some organizational problems but i think there's also some some individuals who probably you know need to take responsibility for for their own mistakes um but yeah i mean it just completely summed up chelsea for me they're they're very exciting going forward i thought the third goal that havertz scored was brilliant combination play by pierricksen and and Werner down the right but yeah defensive i mean it's just the same thing all the time isn't it that just sums up Chelsea for me and, and is the reason really why uh, I can't really see them going for the title as, as some people suggested at the start of the season.
3: I, I wonder if there's a, it's slightly speculative, but I wonder if there's a, a little bit of, um, I mean, it sits, it would sit somewhere between naivety and arrogance, I suppose. But Lampard after the game was saying, you know, it's disappointing for us to concede three goals and to not beat a team like Southampton. And I sort of think, well, he has hasn't beaten Southampton at home yet. As a manager, in three goes, and I just, th- I just wonder if it, 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 it's almost as if he thinks I've got these attacking players, I've got these technical midfielders we should roll over these teams. That's what I expect because I remember being Frank Lampard, Chelsea midfielder, when we rolled over teams. And it, it, it's not that easy anymore. You know, if you've got a manager like Ralph Hasen, who is, you who know, has a better CV than Lampard, who is a better tactical coach than Lampard, then if you leave flaws there for him to exploit, he's going to exploit them, especially when they're the same flaws that were happening all the way through last season. So it, it almost feels like he needs to take his medicine a bit and think, well, let's go back to basics. You know, you... you we're not going to win games if if we're allowing a team like Southampton to have more shots than us, to have more shots on target than us, to create more chances than us, even when we've got this excellent array of attacking players. It just feels a bit dim, really.
1: Yeah, Seb Stafford-Bloor tweeting, if Frank Lampard had a different passport, Sunbright Spark would be proposing getting Sam Allardyce in for a few days a week by now.
2: Uh, I mean, get, i as supposed to getting... getting um... Some other days, I think they think they need to get a different keeper in um, because he just seems to. But the life. Well, yeah, but who was injured for this? But I, I, mm. thought, I, th- I think for everybody's sake, I think I said it last time at the Liverpool game. You know, this has to be the end of Kepa because there, there were there were situations in that game where you look at the body language and Zoom is like Pfft. Kepa is just looks completely beat. Um, yes, he made some saves. What
1: noise would you make for Theo Walcott? Meanwhile, returning to Saints and setting up. That stoppage time equaliser for Yannick Vestergaard.
2: Yeah. Well, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know what noise to make for that. I, th- I think he probably made it himself by by shouting lots afterwards. But again, that um, that dis- 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 disorganized defending and then Vestergaard is huge, and he somehow got forgotten right in the middle of the box. Uh, and was nowhere near the header. I know it's, it's, he probably wouldn't have saved it, but it's the whole the whole mentality of defending. I mean, as as, as you were saying about Lampard before, I have all these all these. Uh, as Daniel was saying about this, all these attackers. Uh, Does he really not understand defending, basically? I mean, because this is what happens when you look at this Chelsea team.
1: Well, credit to Theo and Southampton for their stirring late comeback. Chelsea next up will be facing Sevilla on Tuesday. Sevilla, who lost this weekend in the Liga 1-0 to
2: Granada. Spent half the game playing with 10 men as well. Mm.
1: Interesting. We'll have more details on that uh, from uh, Alvaro Romeo in Tuesday's... Euro-flavoured totally. Uh, Finally, just to wrap up the rest of Saturday's action, it consists of Man City taking on Arsenal, a 1-0 victory for City, which saw them back on track after two disappointing results. Saw Arsenal back on track too, in terms of losing away at a big six rival, like, you know, very much on brand. 29 such games they've had without a victory of course, is it fair to say this game wasn't quite the thrill-fest that uh, many of us were hoping for? Michael, though, you had fun trying to work out what shape was everyone in and why William was now a centre-forward and sterling a holding midfielder and things.
4: <laughs> I really love this game, actually. I must say, uh, much as some of these goal-fests have been very exciting, after a while, I kind of you become a bit um, immune to the excitement of them, I thought. Mm. This was just... A completely different style of game. But, yeah, I thought fascinating. And I think, you know, we often give Guardiola criticism for overthinking his tactics. Well, I thought this was a great example of where he he probably sprung a surprise upon Arteta, of course, who knows him better than anyone. The use of Kyle Walker as a right-sided centre-back, I thought completely nullified Aubameyang. Um, I think the use of Jao Cancelo in an unusual kind of half-right-back, half-central midfield role probably produced the best performance I've seen from him. And I thought it was very different from the way they played against Leeds where the wide players were always coming inside to shoot and I thought City were as predictable as I can remember them. Here they played with great width. I mean, Foden out on the left, uh, I think had a really good game and and uh, you know got the better of Bellerin in the build-up to the goal and Mahrez I thought was City's best player against Kieran Tierney who's a really good defender Um, I thought everything about Mahrez's game his dribbling his pass in the build-up to that goal was really good Um, and just yeah interesting things all over the pitch Sterling used as number 10 not sure I've seen him used there before for City although he has played there for Liverpool and England uh, previously I just thought it was a good quality game and I think City deserve credit as well for the way that they killed the game after half-time which is something that I don't think they've done as well as we would have expected under Guardiola I think often they've invited too much pressure but Arsenal um, just didn't have a shot I think their last open play attempt was 20 seconds into the second half with a a Pepe header after that they had two free kicks from Luis and Pepe which were nowhere near the target Um, and City were pretty comfortable so um, yeah I I thought it was a pretty enjoyable game and a good City performance
3: I picked out Carl Walker as the game's best player or maybe the the difference maker because, uh, he, as Michael says, he's picked as that right-sided central defender but his role was, when City didn't have the ball, was basically to sprint wherever he needed to go in City's half to intercept or to head out a ball that that basically stopped a one-on-one with either Aubameyang or Pepe getting through. And Walker has his criticisms and rightly so I think and he, he can get a bit flat-footed and allow runners in behind him but I really like that combination of him and Cancelo being able to do each other's jobs if they need to and Walker with that ridiculous recovery pace. He's he's bad at some things but there aren't many better defenders in the world at that recovery pace to to uh, snuff out danger.
1: All of that plus Sergio Aguero back way ahead of schedule. Any thoughts on his performance including or not including his convivial arm around Sean Massey's neck
3: yeah I mean that was really disappointing really really disappointing it was a it was a, a stupid and it was really disappointing that, that Guardiola used his defense as well he's a nice guy so we can't have done anything wrong as if nice guys don't make mistakes and um very very briefly the reason why it makes a difference that it was Sean Massey Ellis rather than a male official is that um well firstly Sean Massey knows only too well that how Female officials or females in football can be um, victimised and um, well, I mean mistreated by people in the game. After the Richard Keys and Andy Gray incident, um, and it's also just in, it's incredibly patronising of Agüero. It's, it's um, uh, it was a stupid thing to do, and I'm really surprised that Guardiola didn't just say, "Yeah, you know, it wasn't a good thing to do. I've had a quiet word with him. It won't happen again," because that would have been the easier and cleverer response.
1: Mm, certainly. All right, well, Man City will be at home to Porto on Wednesday while Arsenal travel to Austria for some Thursday night action at the home of Rapid Vienna. Next up for us, listener, we travel to the heady delights of Sunday's other games. Goals from Sheffield United, Fulham, Palace and Brighton and, yes, Villa. Villa.
0: This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kaye and the very best football writers around.
1: Hey listener, 19th of October today, I think we mentioned that. In 1993, on this day, Norwich beat Bayern Munich away at the Olympic Stadium in Munich.
5: Fed in by Newman and Robbins well forward and Goss was well forward too and Norwich have taken the lead. Jeremy Goss again.
3: Unbelievable stuff. (laughs) Well, when he scores goals, they're either spectacular or important, and that one's both.
1: They were the first English side ever to do do this. Not sure how many other other English... How many English sides have beaten Bayern Munich away since? Anyway, they got a draw back home at Carrot Road and went into the third round. Two. I'm hearing two from producer Charlie. So they're one of only three teams to do it. Anyway, they knocked Bayern Munich out of the UEFA Cup and they got done by... Into Milan. At San Siro, a game which I remember with great affection because I watched it sat next to the great Nicola Berti. Woohoo! If you're listening to this, by the way, not on the 19th of October, but on 20th, Tuesday, then on this day in history, 20th of October, 1928, Leicester uh, had their highest ever Football League score. It was 10-0 over Portsmouth at Filbert Street. Arthur Chandler with six goals in a win which became known as the six Swans match. Why is that, James? Well, after Chandler had scored five goals, five Swans flew over Filbert Street. A sixth Swan flew over shortly afterwards and then the fans demanded a sixth goal from Chandler, which he duly scored. Well, it's marvellous stuff. I mean, it's a different world, isn't it? Yeah. Chandler, eh? Could he be
4: any more prolific? Incredible.
1: So... Also on this Sunday then we touched on Villa's remarkable finale away at Leicester. At the other end of the table and at the other end of the day, the bottom two met at Bramall Lane. Sheffield United with a 1-1 draw uh, with Fulham which featured a fabulous goal by Adamola Lookman.
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he was the game's best player as well. Um I'm really pleased for him because he he until Sunday he he started 15 league games since his move from Charlton to Everton, which was January 2017, uh, and and clearly that's nowhere near enough football for a, um, a then 18 19 year old and now a 22 year old. So if he if he can get the the regular minutes that his development needs, he is a special talent. He really is. Um, he, he's probably made some, some bad decisions, but he's also got a bit unlucky because he's gone to clubs that have then changed managers and he's not fitted in. And Hopefully now, albeit at a club threatened with relegation, he can kind of demand the ball and, and look to run the show, which is, is pretty much what he did.
1: 1-1 mm. one, one as well between Palace and Brighton in the Glen Murray Clasico. Uh, another late goal here, a deflected 89th-minute equaliser from
2: Alexis McAllister. It's his first. Uh, hello, Sasha. Sorry, can I slag off the Fulham goalkeeper again? Oh, yeah, for sure. So I thought there's some worrying things here um, in the Sheffield United game for Fulham. So against a team that can't really score, I thought Fulham were pretty much torn apart time after time in the first half. And of course, at the very, very end, they again have a PSG number two who can't deal with crosses uh, because that penalty doesn't happen if Ariel doesn't drop the ball, having collided with his own defender. And I just thought there was just not enough competence again at the back for Fulham. And I know Lukeman has at least added something to them going forward, but... At the back, they're still, I think, pretty ropey.
1: Michael, a quick thought on events at Serhus Park?
4: Yeah, disappointing game. I think uh, if you didn't see this game, I'd say imagine what you think might have happened between Hodgson's Palace and Potter's Brighton. That being that Palace had one shot in the entire game, which was from a penalty, and Brighton had about 20 shots, dominated possession for the majority, and very much deserved their late-ish equaliser. Um, But, yeah, it was a disappointing game. It was the kind of game that I think you'd usually look forward to because it's, you know, a bit of a derby. The A23 derby, not the M23 derby, I believe, as as pedants insist on calling it. But I just thought without fans, it kind of lacks atmosphere. It was actually a little bit scrappy. There was a few kind of squabbles and Mm. a late red card for Lewis Dunk with a kind of Pickford-esque
1: tackle. Um, But, yeah, not a particularly interesting game, to be honest. All right, then. And the late game, Leicester Villa, as we mentioned, finishing one nil to Villa after Ross Barkley's late late strike. Villa continuing their perfect start. Mm. Midlands team that narrowly avoids relegation one season, off to a flyer the next one. Doesn't have European commitments. I think we all know where this is going, Sasha. Yeah,
2: I think uh, this this was um, this was a game where I think Leicester were acutely aware of what sort of threat Villa can so Tillemann's very much next to Mendy, centre-back's deep, um, and I, th- I thought they, would, they had a very sort of tight game plan uh, whereby they wouldn't overcommit, and uh, uh, I thought they closed down the space in midfield really, really well, um, as opposed to what Liverpool did a couple of weeks ago. So I thought it was a very cautious approach from, from Leicester, which didn't make for a particularly interesting game.
1: I mean, the, the finale was nice, but yeah, before that, it was almost as if we'd had all the fun and it was going to be hard for them to, to live up to match The extraordinary events in North London a little bit earlier that day. Monday, we've got two more Premier League games to conclude round five of the season. West Brom take on Burnley at 5.30. Burnley, of course, the only pointless team remaining in the Premier League. Leeds, meantime, at eight o'clock will be hosting Wolves, which could be an exciting match. We'll have more on those games in Thursday's pod. Very shortly today... Julian Laurent will be joining us, as I mentioned earlier, to Muse over Tuesday's Paris Saint-Germain-Man United clash in Paris. Before that, though, let's get some odds from Lee Price.
5: Hello, listener. Yes, you. Have I ever told you how much I appreciate you? No? Well, I do. Many don't stick with me, I know that, but you're a good one. Or you just can't be asked to press skip, but whatever. Let's not spoil the moment. Anyway, I am a man of fragile ego, and to be honest with you, I long assumed the position in this segment was to bury the commercial partner, to hide away the bloke shouting the odds, literally, and to pretend it wasn't happening. But my eyes and my heart have been opened, listener. Actually, the Totally Football Show clearly have been treating this slot like a Manuel Lanzini fizzle popper. That's my new word. Just trying it out. I think it works. I'm the bolt from the blue, the show stopping end. So thank you. Thank you all. As for the numbers, I suppose I'd better say some. Burnley are pointless, take that how you will, and we don't expect that to change after their Monday night fixture of West Brom, who were the 7-5 favourites to win that one. Everton top the league and are 17-1 now to win the title. They're 3-1 to, to finish in the top four, while the rest of the Premier League continues to be glorious brilliant viewing. Good enough, dare I say it, to pay to watch. Just kidding, honest, hey, call off the mob. Ta-ra.
1: You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It is over 18s only. Terms and conditions do apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Listener, what's coming up this week from your friends at Totally? Well, Totally Football League show on Monday, which will no doubt concern itself with Paul Scholes getting off to a losing start at Salford. <laughs> Daniel, you're <laughs> chuckling. <laughs>
3: No, the, the thing that made me laugh about that is, is how Gary Neville has been incredibly insistent that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer needs patience and time to turn things around at Manchester United, but did sack a manager who was unbeaten so far that season to replace him with a mate who then lost his first game. I mean, um, these things can happen, but it, it it forced a wry smile, shall I say.
1: I see. Meanwhile, I imagine there were smiles too few as Chris Houghton got off to a winning start at Nottingham Forest.
3: Yes, yes. Uh, we'll not talk about Nottingham Forest unless Matt Davies-Adams is on the show to save the listeners. So, um, okay. yes, first win, which is good. Suddenly the, the fixture list looks a little easier.
1: More details on that and much, much more in the Totally Football League show from Monday. On Tuesday, three shows for you. There's the Offside Rule uh, WSL edition, which will probably have a bundle on uh, Vivian Miedemar, who's now the top scorer in WSL history. 52 goals in 50 games. Totally Scottish football show. We'll talk about the Old Firm game and that. Rangers winning to stay top of the Premiership. And also on Tuesday, up very early in the morning, it's the Totally Football Show European edition, which I think I've mentioned once or twice. Loads in this one. Milan derby news. Napoli COVID controversy latest. Spain's big two losing. And, of course, that thorough look ahead to match day one of the Champions League. Speaking of which, hello, Junior Laurence joins us now for a quick heads-up on Tuesday night's clash between Paris Saint-Germain and Man United. Hello, Julian.
6: Hi, James. Hi, everyone.
1: Jules, I imagine that Paris Saint-Germain have been looking forward to this since the draw, a chance to get their revenge for that big surprise knockout in the last 16 a couple of seasons back by Man United.
6: You're right, Jimbo. Exactly. That's that's the first thought that everybody had, really, when the draw was was made. Not that he will have the same importance and, and impact, of course, because when United came to the Par de Prince 18 months ago and, and won 3-1 and knocked PSG out, that was in the knockout stages, obviously, the last 16. It was another remontada, another psychological disaster, in a way, after PSG was so brilliant in the first leg at Old Trafford and, and, and won 2-0, could have easily won by more as well. So certainly there will be a sense of revenge a bit, or at least a sense of you know, let's 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 get one back on United, especially after ha- what happened in, in twenty nineteen, because as we said, it won't have the same impact. Even if, if PSG finished top, for example, in Leipzig second and, and United go third and are out of the Champions League, I don't think PSG will see that as a revenge as such because it was obviously far more of a trauma for PSG to be knocked out the way they did by United 18 months ago than it would be for United just to finish third of the group or fourth.
1: Beyond any kind of backstory, though, each of these games are now really important for both teams because it's such a tough group they're in, with Leipzig top of the Bundesliga in this group as well as alongside Basak Shahir. And having now gone all the way to the final a couple of months ago in the Champions League, are PSG really putting everything towards Champions League this time around?
6: Yeah, I think it, once again, it's the the big objective and the big target. And I think there's a feeling inside the club for sure that they will try to build on last season's campaign. They had an interesting summer in terms of recruitment. They could not sell as much as they wanted, but certainly in terms of the players that they bought for the money that they had available, you could say it's, a, it's more than a decent summer, really, more than a decent recruitment. So far, players like Florenzi, uh, Moise Ken had his debut on... on on Friday night, I thought he did well. He didn't score, but could have scored and created some chances for himself, as well as being interesting in his uh, link-up play. I uh, thought that was good. Rafinha had a really strong debut, played an hour in midfield, was really good, gave a wonderful assist for Kylian Mbappe on the first goal. So there's been some positives, but you're right. That, that's what, once again, Thomas Tuchel will be judged on, is the Champions League. They It looks like they have a new status in a way, and they have to confirm that status by doing hopefully as well or even better than last season. But certainly, you know, be there with the contenders when we come down to the quarterfinals, maybe semi-final and and, and etc. And and there's a feeling that there's a lot of excitement, I think, in Paris at the club and with the fans that the Champion League is back again. Not that long after the the that defeat in the final. But certainly that it looks PSG could do something interesting. And you're right, it's a tricky tricky group a bit because I think Bashak Shea would be really the 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 fourth team in, in the group and I think maybe it would be down to how well you do against the Turkish side because I think Leipzig and United and, and PSG are PSG is life everywhere but they're quite you know quite on the same level more or less, especially for Leipzig and PSG. So it'd be very interesting to see especially United and how how do how well they do in the in the in the group stage.
1: mm uh, How well do you think they're gonna do on Tuesday? What are the prospects they have there at the Parc des Princes against PSG, who I imagine are heavy favourites for this.
6: Yeah, I would say a heavy favourite, especially at the Parc des Princes, even with very little fans. I, the, the thing is, and it's a bit like it was a, a 18 months ago, PSG would play exactly the style of football that United want. And we saw it a bit, in fairness, against Newcastle on Saturday night as well when they scored what, three of their four goals on the counter-attack, pretty much, United. And I, it would be exactly the same. PSG would have loved the ball, which means that... Bruno Fernandes and and Marcus Rashford and whoever else play if Pogba plays or Martial is back will we'll have Cavani. a lot of space to play on the counter-attack. Or Cavani. Or even Cavani, you're right. I'd be surprised to see him start although, you know, nothing surprises you in football anymore uh, because he hasn't, he, you know, he hasn't trained much really with the first team and he just came out today on Sunday when we record this out of his quarantine. So, it'd be very interesting to see what Solskjaer does with, with Cavani but, but yeah, maybe even Cavani, but all that space. And it's exactly what United love. They love, they really love going forward quickly, having quick forward transitions and play on the break, play on the counter with all that pace they have up front. And I think, PSG will offer that. I think it would be a a question of who will take more the chances because PSG will have a lot of chances as well. We know that the form that Mbappe and Neymar are in is pretty incredible. So they will have chances, but they will also probably expose themselves a bit and give some chances to United too. Mm
1: -hmm. All right, George. Well, listen, we'll hear more from you and we'll discuss this more on Tuesday in the Totally Football Show's European edition. And of course, we'll enjoy the game together in Tuesday night's golf show on BT Sport. For now, though, merci, mon ami, et bonsoir. Merci. Well, many thanks to Julian de Ron. More from him, of course, in Tuesday's show 3-1, of course, for the Red Devils last time they visited the Parc des Princes. Which, wasn't that the win that got Ollie the job permanently? It was. What Do you agree with uh, Julian's optimistic view of, of, of United's prospects this time? Yeah, I do.
4: I think they'll play on the counter-attack as they did very well last time. The strange thing last last time was that they played on the counter-attack throughout the game and yet it was held up as an example of why Solskjaer gets the club because he has the side playing dominant attacking football, which wasn't the case. But yeah, United have generally been good in, in situations like that and uh, I think this is probably one of the more
1: interesting games of the round. mm. Mm-hmm. Well, you can decide for yourself when we list some of the other key games, and there are some pretty interesting ones in Tuesday's show with Alvaro Jules Rafa and James Horncastle. That's it for today's show, though. So many thanks to Michael, Daniel and Sasha. Lovely to see you all. And thanks you, listener,
0: for your company. Have a great week, and we'll catch up with you soon. Cheerio. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network.